Hello, I'm Haya, and thank you for welcoming us into your ears. You've tuned in to Human Awareness, a podcast about what it means to be human and the various ways that that shows up for people. And hi, I'm Kate, and I'm so glad to have you here with us. Haya and I are representing the Human Awareness Institute, or HI for short, as we explore important themes related to love, intimacy, and sexuality. Obviously, our podcast can't replace our workshops, but we hope that in these interviews, you're able to catch a glimpse of who we are and what we do. Shall we get started with the interview? Yes. Come settle in with me and I'll hit play. Welcome back to another episode of Human Awareness. Today, I'm joined by a friend um, and we're going to talk about a really exciting topic that has actually been really close to my heart for a long time. And I didn't realize quite how much until pretty recently, um, which I'll tell you about in just a moment. But for now, uh, my dearest guest, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us which pronouns you use? Uh, yeah. Hi, my name is Marsha Baczynski or Marsha B. And I use she, her pronouns. And I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Where in the world are you? I am in the East Bay near San Francisco. Oh, wonderful. Me yeah. too. I'm oh, just wonderful. up in the hills. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, as I hinted, uh, I am very excited about the topic of this conversation. And when we were first introduced to uh, Marsha, she mentioned, hey, I I do so many things, I can talk about anything, which is my favorite kind of guest. But the name of her website is Asking for What You Want. And I just completely lit up because I was like, wait a minute, this is really important to me personally. For a little bit of context, I um, turned 40 uh, very recently. And my wonderful, um, I run a company and my company decided to throw a surprise birthday party for me. And as part of that, uh, they actually, one of my uh, coworkers interviewed me and I was like, okay, that's weird, but let's do it. And one of the questions they asked me was, what would, what advice would you give yourself, uh, 10 years ago? Hmm. And I was like, oh God, I know this is meant to be a lighthearted question, but here we go. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, well, I've had a, I've had a bit of a decade, to be honest with you. And um, I wish I knew three things. One was to always ask for what I want. Mm. Uh, the second is to find out what my boundaries are, express them clearly, and hold them well. And the third one was to really celebrate a no. When, when I ask for something and somebody says no, you know, that's not about me. That's about them holding a boundary and that should be celebrated. Three of my favorite things. Right? <laughs> and I was like, can I just teleport myself back to the 30-year-old high and say, hey, think about these things, dude. It'll make your life a lot easier over the next decade. But, you know, here I am. And uh, when I realized I had the opportunity to talk to you about this topic, I was like, oh, yes, let's lean in and do this. Oh, yeah. So I guess uh, given that this is the title of your website, this is important to you. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about why and how you got to that? Yeah. So I, yeah, it was a bit of a circuitous path, to be honest. I mean, whose whose story isn't? Um, so I grew up in Georgia, um, went to Catholic school, uh, though somehow it didn't conform to the stereotypes. I think we had very liberal nuns, so it didn't conform to the stereotypes of Catholic school. Um, but I was in the South. Uh, I was in a very conservative family um, and going to Catholic school. And um, yet somehow in all of that, my mom was a nurse and she worked for a social services agency that worked with a lot of um, pregnant mother, like teen mothers kind of a thing. 
and um, young people. And so somehow in all of that, she thought it was really important that I get accurate sex education. It wasn't necessarily Mm. pleasure focused and it wasn't necessarily um, liberal in its its, uh, sense of exploration, let's say, but it was different than what most of the people around me were getting. So, and I remember, I have this memory of (laughs) reading, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, when I was like seven or eight. Yes, yes. That's come up a few times, actually. (laughs) And learning about periods and asking my mom about it. And she explained it to me. And then me turning around and explaining it to my younger brother the next day while she sat in the car and like listened to see how accurately I explained it. (laughs) So even from a young age, I was like very interested in bodies and just like it wasn't even sex at that age I was too young but it was just like kind of there was this neutrality it wasn't necessarily sex positivity but it was like a neutrality like you can ask questions and get factual answers in my household growing up and then I came of age I'm a little bit older than you um I I came of age not much (laughs) uh in the AIDS during the AIDS epidemic and you know it was a very interesting time to be trying to figure out my sexuality uh both because I was I did not have the language to explain that I wasn't exactly heterosexual. Um, back then, your two options were gay or straight. And I was like, well, I like boys, so I must be straight. That was not true at all. It was a lot more complicated than mm-hmm. that, it turns yep. out. Um, and I, you know, I was kind of coming of age in this in this milieu of AIDS and HIV and trying to find representations of queerness that um, were very hard to find anything that looked like me or sounded like me, what I was experiencing. Um, And I started doing peer counseling because again, like to explain things to people about basics, you know, neutral information. And I started doing HIV prevention and it was a lot of, you know, back then in the nineties, it was a lot of like condoms, 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 um, and abstinence. Right. And I got on the condom train rather than the abstinence train because I knew that people were going to still want to have sex. (laughs) Yes. And so what I, but then I became really interested in, well, I'll get to that in a minute. So then that kind of kicked me off for, for sex education. And that's sort of, you know, just my curiosity about people really, and all the variety of ways people can express turn on and connection and intimacy and, and all the other stuff that goes with that shame and fear and all that. Keep in mind also, I'm still living in the South Mm-hmm. And in a, you know, I wasn't evangelical, but I was also in a stew of evangelical fundamentalist Christianity too. So that was like not my home life, but it was around. And so that mm-hmm. also, I started really seeing how mismatched a lot of things were, like what people were being taught versus what they felt like their actual options were. And then... I moved to New York City after I graduated college and 9-11 happened shortly after that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I was um, unemployed. I had gotten a job doing editing stuff for websites and um, I had lost my job right before 9-11. And then it was just sort of a, a weird time of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I found this coach who was significantly older. She actually just passed. She's, she's in her, she passed in her 80s. So she was like 40 years older than me. She was in her 60s at the time, who most of her clients were middle-aged women. And I found this interesting thing where all these women were like trying to figure out what they wanted to do now that they had raised kids. And um, and I was just like, huh, 
what if I could answer that question earlier in my life? Mm. Um, so that became a fascination. And then one of the things I hit on is I actually do. I do want to be a sex educator. So I went and got some training. And then in 2004, I co-founded Cuddle Party with Reed Mahalko um, mm-hmm. in New York. And that became just this an interesting lab because it was not sexual. It was explicitly a non-sexual event. Mm-hmm. And it was about asking for what you want. It was about boundaries. And it was about being able to hear a no. So those three things that you said earlier. <laughs> yeah, those, 100%. And touch, you know, and touch. But the communication side of it was about those things. And yeah. it became really clear to me that in my sex education, in my cuddle party stuff, in the HIV prevention, and then later when I started coaching couples around opening their relationships, one thing was really in common uh, through all of that, which was, yeah, okay, so teach people how to use condoms, teach people how to cuddle. But what is about that moment before that when someone knows they want something and then they have mm-hmm. to talk about it, that bare moment of vulnerability when you're like, crap, I figured out what I want and now I need to say something. Yeah. And that is how I got to asking for what you want, which I started in 2010. I started the website in 2010. And um, it's been this body of work I've been developing that includes consent, that includes figuring out what you want, includes boundaries. It includes, you know, working with rejection or the perception of rejection. And just sort of circling around these like same five or six topics over and over again um, and in different applications. So mm-hmm. lately I've been doing a lot of it around, you know, what do you want now that the pandemic is shifting and what do you want now that the world's opening back up? But it's the same skills and it's the same. I have this just deep passion for working with people and meeting them in that place of figuring out what they want and then like having to be with it and then figuring out if they want to do something with the information that they now have about what they want. Yeah. Um, well, and I think in this space of asking for what you want, mm-hmm. you meet a lot of stuff that people, um, I hesitate to use the word trigger, but where people are activated. Yeah. You know, we have a uh, fear of rejection. We have fear of taking up too much space. Mm-hmm. We have fear of, you know, there's so many pieces that often come up in, you know, interpersonal relationships and in, even in professional relationships but that that and I so um, feel you describing that moment. You know, you know, you a, a thought has formed. You're about to open your mouth. Yeah, and it's terrifying. What if the other person is horrified by what you're about to ask for? What if they, you know, what if that changed their entire opinion of you? Totally. And of course, the crazy thing is. I feel like I start to have some exercise now in asking for what I want. And that has never happened. Mm. Right. Even if you ask for something that the other person is like, um, hell no. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's even that it usually doesn't get, it usually doesn't become hell no. And you're a complete asshole for even asking. Mm-hmm. Right. And internally feeling into what the difference is there is actually really powerful. Yeah. I think that's such an important point. And, you know, when I think about the the things we're up against when it comes to asking, I, 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 there's an article about this on my website, um, but I, I think a lot about why we don't ask and what we do instead, because I feel mm. like that is a place where we can look for clues that there's desire, 
Because a lot of times we hide our desire from ourselves because of mm-hmm. all of those things, the fear of rejection, the fear of being judged, the um, fear of being too much, the fear of making your partner think that they're not enough um, mm-hmm. or not wanting to rock the boat, all of those kinds of things. And yet we still have desires. Yep. And desire is persistent. I always say desire is a life force. If you stop wanting things, you've got a big survival problem. <laughs> yep. like if you don't want anything, that's called suicidal depression. You know, when we we just don't want anything. And so desires, whether they're big or small, socially acceptable or or quote unquote deviant, those are our life force and it won't be denied. You know, we want things. And we can try to concrete over whatever our desires are. Just like pour that slab of concrete, bury it it's not there and yet you will see things creeping around the edges cracks forming dandelions cracking you know coming up through the cracks because it's life life wants to live and i think that's such a um a keen thing and you know i and because that stuff is so persistent we will try to get it met we will we will deny it to ourselves sometimes um, and try to hide it from our partners or hide it from ourselves or, you know, write laws so that say other people can't do the thing that we, <laughs> we want to do if we're a senator. Um, you know, we'll, we'll do all kinds of really bizarre things when we want something and we're trying to not admit it. And I call and some of those are not like they're innocuous or kind of cute. And some of them are like not particularly supportive of your relationships. And some of them are like downright toxic, but I call all of those things desire smuggling. That desire whole, smuggling? Desire smuggling. So there's an article about that on my website, right? Then this this idea that we will smuggle our desire. We will smuggle it even to our own height. Like we will hide it from ourselves. And I, I now have this amazing uh, image of you in a bandana in a speedboat. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like there, there's definitely some like, I don't know, a motorcycle jacket or something, <laughs> smuggling <laughs> desires nice. across the border, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, we, we, we do things like, you know, one of the ones that I cannot yet break my he- myself of the habit is what I call options roulette. And it's a pretty harmless form of desire smuggling. It's like, I'll give you three options, mm. two of which I can live with and one of one one of them is the one I secretly want, but I don't want to tell you that. <laughs> right. You know, and we do all kinds of things like that. And then we do the ones that are more harmful to our relationships. We're passive aggressive, we're judgmental, or harmful to ourselves, where we shame ourselves or belittle ourselves, that kinds of thing, those kinds of things. Yep. And then there's the stuff that's like truly toxic, raping, stealing, murdering, mm-hmm. t- just taking, you know, just taking things and manipulation, coercion, those kinds of things. But I do find it, while I always remind people they can set boundaries against and uh, about any kind of behavior they want to, I also think it's very interesting that um, whether it's innocuous, sort of middle of the road, not productive and slightly toxic, like slightly harmful or outright toxic, it is an interesting exercise to look at those behaviors and get curious about mm. two things. One, what is the desire? And two, what is the fear? That's a really good point. Yeah. And with those two questions, some curiosity and some compassion, 
that becomes a clue. Like, oh, I noticed that I was being passive aggressive. I think that means I want something. Let me try that again. Yeah. Or I'm sensing some jealousy. What does that mean? Right. Yeah, totally. Right. Exactly. I noticed that I was being extremely judgmental of that woman who is, you know, quite attractive and seems to have all Mm -hmm. the attention that I want. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I actually I, noticed that in a really elegant way in a in a call I had recently that was actually full of high people where somebody did a really mild transgression of a non-disclosure agreement. They mm. they mentioned something and really all they said I mean they confirmed something that everybody in the room knows mm-hmm. but the the um the specific you know wasn't theirs to disclose. So right. basically it was oh yeah you were there was the only thing they said. And, you know, in the container of these workshop, we have a very explicit thing. You don't ever get to disclose that somebody was there. Right. You know? And so it was a really interesting piece to kind of, she obviously had, she wanted to make a point. She had to confirm that the person was there to make that point and then kind of slightly overstep the boundary. Mm-hmm. All of that is perfectly human and perfectly understandable. Totally. What I loved was what happened immediately after. She caught herself. She corrected, she apologized, she checked if there needed to be any sort of correction or restitution or repair. There wasn't. I mean, the other person was almost surprised by the correction. But I I, I just thought that was such good modeling for how these types of conversations could happen. Like if I ask for something I want and I make an assumption about the other person that I shouldn't have made, if I catch that, that's an opportunity to, to check, you know? And those types of um, interactions, you know, people are so not used to catching themselves out. And when they do, they're unlikely to call it out themselves. Mm -hmm. But I feel like in these types of conversations, that is such a powerful tool to really stay attuned to the conversation that is currently being had, especially if it's one that has a lot of vulnerability in it. Yeah, I think it's such a powerful trust building Hmm. thing too, right? Because... When we break those small agreements, especially the ones where it's like, oh, it's such a minor transgression. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's not that it's a big deal. And this is something that's true about boundaries, too. It's not that it's such a big deal or it's harmful or that it's it's whatever. It's a chipping away of trust. Yeah. And, you know, I, I frequently work with my clients, especially the people pleaser clients of mine, of mm-hmm. which I have many. <laughs> And um, one of the things we work on is, you know, set the boundaries way early, set Mm -hmm. the set, set your boundaries long before your limits, long Mm. before the part where if it's crossed, it'll be a problem. Yeah. And there's a few reasons for that, especially in a new connection. Um, But even even when you're resetting boundaries or reestablishing a relationship or trying to adjust boundaries with, you know, a loved one. Mm -hmm. um, One, people make mistakes. Right. It's yeah. not that people are trying to cross your boundaries, but misunderstandings yeah. happen or, you know, just minor transgressions where it's like, oh, man, I didn't I didn't get that right. Mm-hmm. And so when those boundaries are set right next to the limits and they're accidentally crossed, it's a big deal. Yeah. But when you set your boundaries a, a little further out, there's a buffer between your boundary and your limit. You there's a, there's a little bit of play in it, and you still want to call it out. And this is the thing that I see my clients, my people pleaser clients, they don't, oh, well, I don't want to make a big deal out of it. Yeah. It's not making a big deal out of it, but how they respond to you correcting a boundary crossing 
especially when it's minor, is a very big clue about how somebody will respond when they there's a boundary crossing and it's a much bigger boundary that's being Absolutely, crossed. Absolutely, yeah. You know, if somebody can't handle a small correction, they really are not going to react well to a large correction and you're going to have a much bigger problem. Yeah. So it's, I feel like that has evolved into being one of my superpowers. Ah. Um, like people feel really safe around me. Mm. And that has been true for a very long time. And I've always been a little bit baffled by that. Mm-hmm. And only in more recent times has it come up in more context and more, um, uh, more kind of, I don't want to use the word intimate, uh, more sensitive or, or, vulnerable moments Mm -hmm. and i think it's a it's a really interesting observation i i mean i am delighted if people feel safe with me don't get me wrong but every time somebody mentions it i feel such a pang of grief that that is unusual for this person yeah i know that feeling yeah yeah Yeah. it's like oh finally they can kind of they can kind of sink into me or kind of be okay with that and i'm like oh god I I don't know what's happened in this world that this is not the norm. Uh, and of course I make mistakes. And of course there are people who don't feel safe around me. But I feel like absolutely that piece is so... Um, it shouldn't be rare, but it's rare. And I I fall into the same trap of not wanting to speak my full desire or pre-negotiating my desire, you know, asking for what I think they're willing to accept rather than asking for what I'm actually wanting right yeah that's it's just really really complicated to me i feel yeah so there's a couple things i want to speak to in what you just said Um, yeah please do interesting thing so um i recently turned in the manuscript for my book that i'm co-writing uh it'll be out in january it's called creating consent culture an educator's handbook it'll be out in january 2022 nice but one of the things i noticed when we were writing the book is that so much of consent culture, the, the misconception people have about consent is that it's about asking permission. It's not, a, it's not not about asking for, for permission, but permission is such a small piece of consent. It's about creating agreements about how we want to play together. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I noticed when we were writing the book was that we ha- like people don't learn how to create space for safety. It's not like we can't make people feel safe, but we can create space for safety, right? Mm. Um, We can honor people's nose. We can pay attention to body language. We can um, validate that someone asked for what they wanted, even if we have no interest in fulfilling it. (laughs) Mm. And those kinds of skills are so powerful, yes, in vulnerable or intimate or, or... connected situations but also that's the kind of thing that like if kids on playgrounds and adults in workplaces or adults on playgrounds whatever (laughs) you know um if we could just do that more in casual conversation it would really go a long way and i think one of the the challenges to that is um a concept that I think came out of an internet forum originally, like about 10 or 11 years ago, um, about ask culture versus guest culture. Are you familiar with this? Yes, yes, yes. It was so good. So good. So the idea is that ask culture is, you know, if someone, so if if somebody wants to, a friend has got another friend coming into town and, and your friend is asking if your other friend could come stay with you. 
Do you think that is a, a perfectly acceptable request? Or do you think that is a wild in position that you would ever, that somebody would ever ask that? Oh, mm. I don't know this person. What do you mean? Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot written about this on the internet. I super encourage folks to Google it. Um, there's some YouTube videos and some just great articles. But the thing that, that was really striking to me in digging into this, and as somebody who came from a pretty homogenous place and then moved to New York City, which is one of the most heterogeneous places on the planet, where it's just a, you can't mm-hmm. make assumptions about anybody. New Yorkers are very direct. Um, is that it has to do with how homogenous the culture is, um, where everyone is fairly the same and has the same sort of background. You can guess, but when people are coming, you know, cities or um, I would say like in sex is a pl- another place where we can't really make assumptions about what people have been exposed to or what their sort of background is. It is so valuable to ask. But getting over that sense of asking is somehow in and of itself problematic <laughs> yeah, or rude, you know. Um, and I've, I've been playing with this more lately with my clients. Um, yeah. And it's been kind of an aha for some people to sort of see like, oh, yeah, I grew up in the Midwest or I grew up in the South or I grew up in this church community where everybody was very similar or I grew up, you know, in, I mean, Japan is a very like homogenous culture, right? Um, whereas like the U S is a much more of an ask culture overall than, mm-hmm. you know, Japan. And then there's, you know, other places that are even more ask than yeah. the United States. And obviously it's not, um, evenly distributed <laughs> through the States either. Totally. And, and the way this actually springs to life for me from a, from a sexual contest text, I mean, as, as you can tell from the accent, I'm not from here. I'm from yeah. Europe. Yeah. Um, there is a gulf of difference in assumptions people make around sexuality. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, and the most <laughs> obvious one, given given the beginning of this conversation and your uh, championing of condoms, I feel like there's a huge cultural gulf. I mean, here the assumption is you use a condom and you negotiate otherwise. I feel like, and maybe I'm showing my age and maybe, you that's know. Also not, you, that's also not universal across the U.S. That is a oh, California thing. That is a Bay Area, California thing. Interesting. And I guess also there's generational. a big difference there. Yeah, it's also generational. Okay, maybe I've shifted yeah. from one community set to another, but I definitely <laughs> I definitely noticed a very big difference. Yeah. And uh, that shows up particularly in play parties, where the culture here seems to be ask, discuss, get consent, then act. Mm-hmm. And in Europe, um, the, the, the approach seems to be do something and then ask if it was okay. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess culturally that kind of makes sense, question mark. But I am horrified at the thought. I just wouldn't go to a party like that. Yeah. Whereas here, I feel like it's just such a different approach. And as soon as somebody mentioned the the phrase ask or guess. Ask or guess, yeah. Yeah. Um, it just clicked into place for me. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> that just makes so much sense. But it does mean that you need to have an internal relationship with your own self that means that you're not scared of asking or giving a real answer yeah and the giving a real answer is also i think a big growth curve for a lot of people of course and you know i'm firmly in i'm a proponent of ask culture not because i think guest culture is you know inherently bad or something It, it definitely has some both both of them have upsides and downsides right there are people who are yeah you know, whatever i don't need to go into that but 
Um, you can read about the pros and cons if you Google it. But I do think that um, it is important to to note that, you know, the experience you're talking about, that is definitely the kind of experience I try to cultivate in, you know, my my group sex play party kinds of experiences that I've either Mm -hmm. gone to or hosted. And, you know, even in the United States, even in, you know, supposedly sex positive communities, that is not a universal thing. It's, it's really, really mixed. And I find it fascinating and there's regional differences and there's differences from sub community to sub community. And, I do think a lot of this um, asking also comes from the kink world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, you kind of leading into our history a little bit, right? We're both in the Bay Area. What was hit hardest by AIDS? What city was hit hardest by AIDS back in the day? San Francisco. And what was left standing? Well, kink was a way to have sexual encounters, was a way to have heightened emotional states, was a way to access ecstasy without the fluid exchange risk. So a lot of the sort of subcultural things from kink made their way over into the more vanilla world, made their way to the heterosexual world and the the polyamorous world and the hippies. And, you know, and so there's a, there's a very particular flavor um, that I particularly enjoy. I will say <laughs> that people are explicit and don't make assumptions about sexual orientation or interests or kinks yeah. or, or um, fucking or whatever. Um, and it is challenging sometimes when I go to other cities. I'm like, oh God, okay, they do things differently here. <laughs> I'm in Atlanta now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have a funny overlap. I was an exchange student in Georgia uh, in the late 90s. Oh, and where, um, Jackson, Georgia, halfway between Atlanta and Macon. Oh, wow. Okay. It was uh, interesting. I bet. <laughs> and there was a little sliver of sex ed that happened. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, this is several years after I had sex ed in Norway. And it is extraordinarily different. Yeah. You know, it was very, and of course, this is now 25 years later and in a different side of the country. So I can't really compare my experiences in the late 90s in Georgia, rural Georgia, with my experiences in urban uh, hippieville in California. (laughs) But I feel, I still feel like there was such big, um, big differences. And there were some beautiful similarities that I think are cultural to the US. I feel like people are much more open to having quick uh quick depth. Mm-hmm. I like to think of it. You know, the the ability of becoming somebody's best friend in the queue for your uh, latte or whatever. Yes. Uh the less the rest of the world loves to make fun of that. I know. And it, it, it is I a little bit silly. <laughs> right, but I and it took me a long time to get used to, I'm not going to lie. But I've been here for 5 years and now I'm like, oh yeah, I I can sense where that has real meaning and real, there is depth there, even though there's no intention in continuing that depth. Mm -hmm. And I think that cultural difference actually really lends itself to having good consent conversations, Mm. to asking for what you want, even from relative strangers. And so there is an opportunity in there somewhere to lean into that cultural difference and that cultural stereotype to help promote the kind of behaviors that are healthier. Yeah. I love that. That's such an mm. interesting observation. Now, how do we fix Europe? Yeah. <laughs> That's outside my pay scale. 
I'm still working on the rest of the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and some of ca- parts of Canada also. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of clients up in Vancouver. Oh, wonderful. Um, I am excited, though, that there are people like you who are out there now having these conversations. I've kind of kept half a finger on the pulse um, my whole life around yeah. this these topics. And it seems like the conversation is finally maturing. Like the fact that there are books like... Um, I'm currently reading um, Polysecure. Oh, that book! Which it is so good, and I'm like, oh wow, this is the the, for me that was a very big missing piece in understanding how uh, consensual non-monogamy and polyamory works Mm -hmm. and how that fits with my internal systems. And again, it goes so closely to the three things you mentioned about the attachment you have to yourself and the rest of the world, but also asking for what you want it's yeah. it sounds so basic it sounds so, so basic and it's so scary and it is not basic because yeah. the fears and the concerns and the the worries are on some level quite universal and on some level very very personal right yeah um, and again going back to what you were saying of of not everyone has the experience of people just being fine with a no or being fine with a request like that's such a radical thing in and of itself for so many people and mm-hmm. you know one of the one of the harder parts of my job as a coach um especially as a coach who who is not who is very clear to stay out of the lane of therapists and stick with education and guidance um is how much trauma people have from an an emotional trauma and, and, and the ways that parents or classmates or school teachers have just diminished the humanity of so many people, like when they're kids. And then it's like, oh, I'm supposed to be an adult and be able to articulate this stuff and, and ask for what I want and feel securely attached. And I'm just supposed to have that, but how, you know, and that whole learning process of, you know, how does your how does your nervous system work? How does your attachment systems work? Like, mm-hmm. and then people, and I say people, but what I mean is me myself judging myself for not okay. Why am I not securely attached? Why am I? It's like, oh, dude, come on, right. give yourself a fucking break. <laughs> give yourself a break. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think that's particularly challenging for people who spend a lot of time in the personal growth world because there's this mm. idea that like if I just self improve myself enough, then I won't have these problems and. I don't subscribe to that. And I also don't subscribe to the idea that they're problems. I think they are, they are things we have to work with and we all have them. And (laughs) so what I try to do with people is just normalize how like so much of the experience that we're having, you know, other people are having that too. You're not the only one. And you can live a happy and connected and fulfilled life without being perfect. Like God forbid that be the standard. (laughs) But it's, it's, it's there. You know, I see that in people where they're like, oh, if I just, you know, improve myself. Yeah. And I'm like, or you could not improve yourself. You could just accept yourself and work with what you yeah. got. <laughs> yeah. We might get further faster. <laughs> yeah. Well, that there is such a beautiful thing in that about saying, look, you can either wait to start living until you are perfect, in which case you never start living or just get started. It's like the whole beach body thing, right? It's like, yeah. yeah, you can hit the gym and, you know, you can get in shape. And by the time you get in shape, it's November and the beach is closed. Dude, if my body is on a beach, it is a beach body. And also... Right? Hell yeah. In the Bay Area, November is is beach weather. <laughs> okay, fine. It's 
cold now. It's cold this time of year. <laughs> I'm showing my European roots. Uh, no, I, I'm um, East Coast, so I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of beaching in in um, in November. But so I kind of want to wrap this up with some um, with a question. I mean, we've kind of uh, touched on the on the heart of this conversation around asking for what you want in a few different ways. Do you have a um, a pithy canned piece of advice like where the hell do you start oh boy um i don't have a pithy canned of a canned piece of advice because i think it kind of depends on what's getting in the way what i will say i'm really glad you're saying that yeah if there was an easy solution everybody would be doing it right (laughs) right totally and so i'm going to dodge that question slightly and just leave you with one excellent boundary one of my favorite little clever things i've figured out or at least i think it's clever which is that what you like and what you want are not the same thing Mm. that what you want occurs in the moment and what you like is information you accumulate over time. Mm. So I like sushi and chocolate cake. That doesn't mean I want it for dinner, Mm. even though I'm pretty excited almost every time I have those things. And so that's a really good distinction. What we like, we should figure that out. And if you can't figure out what you want, that's a really good starting place because you can at least figure out some things that are on the menu. Mm-hmm. But what we want occurs in the moment and it occurs in our bodies, not in our minds. And so we have to learn how to listen for what we want um, in real time rather than it's not something people are always like, I don't know what I want. I can't figure out what I want. <laughs> like, guys, it's not a knowing or a figuring out. It's a mm. learning how to listen. There's a beautiful, slightly deeper distinction in there too, which is the what you like is more closely related to who you are than the what you want, Mm. right? There's a sense of self in the, I like this, like I like sushi. That says something about me. I want sushi right now says a lot like less about me. Yes, that's true. Because we can want something as a one-off. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Which is why it makes it so slippery. (laughs) I have definitely had the biggest laugh I've had in a long time when a friend of mine ran into a room and shouted, butt stuff. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? That, thank you for, for just bringing that joy to this room very loudly and very proudly. <laughs> and, you know, that was a thing he wanted there and then. Um, and that was, that was really funny and beautiful. And it was just right out there. There was no shame about it. I was like, hell yeah. Yeah. And... That didn't necessarily say as much about him. There was a freedom in that in that uh, proclamation that thinks that I think speaks to what you just said. I think that's a really important distinction that hadn't hadn't actually occurred to me before. Well, I'm glad I could share something new. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, and so, if people want to find out more about you, or actually, could you say a little bit more about what you do? You've mentioned you have clients. I would love to yeah. learn a little bit about so what I, those clients are. So, I work are. with um, individuals primarily, although I, I'm open to working with couples. Um, and I, I'm a coach, and I work with people um, usually in packages, which you can find out about on my website, askingforwhatyouwant.com, if you want to know a little bit more about the coaching piece. I also do a lot of classes. Uh, and I've been doing a series of pandemic, um, supporting people around figuring out how to navigate the pandemic, uh, not necessarily having the answers, but having lots of good questions to ask people that seem to help. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm also, you know, I've got a book coming out, (laughs) so that's an exciting thing. And I've been doing some consulting work for some various, uh, 
sexual education schools um, and consent schools. So that's kind of another thing I've been working on. But mostly I really love working with people one-on-one. It's kind of my happy place, um, helping people figure out, you know, how to relate to their desires, how to listen and lean into the not knowing, and then how to communicate um, what they want and their boundaries. I mean, again, you said it earlier. It's like, it sounds really basic and it's not. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but yeah, if you, if folks want to find out more, you can go to askingforwhatyouwant.com or follow me on social media at Ask Marsha B, M-A-R-C-I-A. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, check out the website. I have been following you on Instagram for a long time and I love how you show up there with truth and vulnerability and beauty. So oh, 100%, you. it's one of my, it's like a drip feed of like stuff to think about, which I think is such a valuable thing. So thank you for doing awesome. that. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. This is really, really lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into the Human Awareness Podcast. For more information about the Human Awareness Institute or our workshops, please visit our website at hi.org. That is H-A-I dot org. As always, it was a pleasure to have you with us. See See you soon. soon.